Thank you very much. Appreciate it. Uh, it's great to see you all here. Um, this makes me feel right at home because in South America, if we begin a class at 7 o'clock in the evening, we're lucky if we get started by 7.30. And uh, Dick and Dick and Ron are <laughs> nodding their heads saying, unfortunately, amen. So you guys are actually rather punctual compared to what we're used to. So uh, I just wanted to uh, just tag along a little bit on what Pastor uh, Matt had to say. In uh, this first class is a really a foundational class in the Brandywine Valley Bible Institute. It's a class that's about learning about the Bible. So there'll be some what we call theologically bibliology. We'll talk about what inspiration is and what illumination is and a lot of these foundational things that, that sometimes even Christians who've been around for a long time haven't really figured out the categories and understand all those things, even though instinctively you understand them in many different ways. But then what we're going to do is spend a lot of time in practical biblical interpretive exercises. So we're going to be learning not only about the Bible and why it is what it is and why we believe it and so forth, but we're also going to begin to learn. Now, in seminary, we call this hermeneutics. Herman who? So, uh, but anyway, um, it's generally understood as the science and art of biblical interpretation. So you're going to learn some basic principles and how to study a biblical text and so forth. So I'm excited to be here for this, and uh, it's kind of unusual for me to be around eight weeks in a row. So uh, I'm on the road so much, so uh, we encourage you to come on out and be a part of that. So um, I'm excited about it. Anyway, okay. Now, uh, if you recall, we're talking about apologetics in the postmodern age, but before we get started, let's uh, have a word of prayer together, shall we? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Christ who came into this world, who died for us, was buried, and rose again on the third day. Yet, in spite of uh, this evidence, this proves that you've given to us in the word of God, there's a great deal of skepticism, cynicism, disbelief in our world today, in spite of our Christian roots of our nation. And so, Father, I pray that as we continue this series on apologetics, that you will give us all um, greater confidence in our faith, ease our doubts that are so often implanted within us, within this culture. And also, I pray, Lord, give us the tools to be able to speak truth to people and to speak to their hearts and their, and their concerns and their issues. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Now, if you recall, last week we were talking about truth. All right? And we, we looked at some of the biblical verses on truth, and we saw truth as correspondence to reality. Um, again, uh, I'm, now, this might be a little bit of review. We'll take a few moments to just kind of catch up to where we are. But um, postmodernist spirituality, Doug Gruthius says, 
deems truth as malleable and adaptable to one's perceived needs and style. One's God concept or personal spirituality is formed irrespective of the idea of reality in and of itself. In other words, uh, you know, you could really simplify that and say truth is whatever you make it. Truth is your truth. It's not necessarily a universal truth. Truth, religious or otherwise, is what works for me or my social group. But what we teach in the Christian faith is that truth works because it's true. In other words, it transcends that. So we often call this the correspondence theory of truth. In other words, the truth corresponds to something that's real, something that's a reality. So if you say one and one equals two, that's truth because one plus one corresponds to the reality of two. And you're like, well, duh. And, and, and that's the frustrating thing about this because so much of our mentality these days can really be countered by, duh, you know. And what we're going to see is that people, they say this, they say that truth is what's truth for me and not for you, but boy, all you got to do is go to the internet and, and to the latest uh, controversy, and everybody wants to know, what's the truth? You know, they don't want to. They don't want to hear. Well, my version of the truth is this. No, they want to know what really happened. What really happened in that court case, in that criminal situation? What really happened uh, in the breakdown of the marriage of our favorite celebrity couple? Right? Who did what? What, what really went on? You know, when uh, so and so was accused of sexual harassment or whatever. You follow what I'm saying? We want to know the truth. What really, we want to know what corresponded to reality when we hear all the different voices speaking about what happened. Okay. So, um, let's move on here a little bit. I, I think I'm, I know that both of the classes were a little bit off. So, um, I'm not sure if I got to this quotation from Gruthius, but again, I want to, I'll go over it again just in case. And he says, without a thorough and deeply rooted understanding of the biblical of truth has revealed, objective, absolute, universal, internally engaging, antithetical and exclusive, unified and systematic, and an end as itself. That's a lot. That's actually, he's got a whole chapter here, and each one of those he breaks out and explains So in his book. So this is kind of a summary statement. The Christian response to postmodernism will be muted by the surrounding culture, culture, or will make illicit compromises with the truth-impoverished spirit of the age. The good news is that truth is still truth, that it provides a backbone for witness and ministry in postmodern times, and that God's truth will never fail. Now, what we're going to see later on is that, and we saw this before, is that Truth is truth because of God. If there is no God, then how is there truth? If everything is random and so forth, so we're going to build that idea a little bit uh, more carefully. Okay. 
So, now, what we're going to do today is shift away from postmodernism a little bit. We've kind of built that, that castle. Since it's postmodernism, it's a sand castle. But, uh, Okay, that one, that one just died right there. You know, let's put it to death. Yeah, you know, it's the sandcastle of postmodern truth. Right, the waves come in and just wash that one completely away. All right. Okay. What I want to talk about here is a little bit, and it's interesting that I had a conversation right before class began. Says, you mentioned uh, presuppositional apologetics. What is that? You know. Can you explain that? Well, I'm going to right now. And this was a part of my plan all along. And I want to talk about different methods of Christian apologetics. A lot of times this kind of uh, just scoots over everybody's head. They don't realize there are different schools of thought, different techniques to doing apologetics. And so let me try to explain this briefly to you. And then what I'm going to be doing uh, the rest of this morning is a more presuppositional approach. But you have others who are going to be doing other approaches. So what are some of the different um, uh, examples? First of all, we'll talk about classical apologetics. And what do we mean by this? Well, the general characteristics are that this stresses rational argumentation for the existence of God. And so they believe that you must first prove theism or prove God's existence, then you can go on to argue for the truth of Christianity. Now, this uh, has been used by Christian apologists for, for millennia, and uh, some examples of current authors who use this technique are Norman Geisler, William Lane Craig out of Biola University, R.C. Sproul, and others, names you probably have heard of or perhaps not. Now, um, I'm not going to take time to do this today because we've already had, um, I believe, who, who was it that did some of these classic arguments for the existence of God? Um, but I think we've already had it. Um, the teleological argument is the argument from design you know, the idea that, well, if I have a watch here, and uh, I say, well, how did this watch come to be? Well, it's not, it did not come to be because I put the ingredients of the watch into my pocket and jumped up and down for a billion years. And all of a sudden, the watch formed itself. Well, how much more is complex is life and miraculous is life and the design of, of a human body and these sorts of things? Uh, what evolution is asking us to believe is that these things all happened randomly, and if you just add enough time onto it, uh, you know, you can somehow believe that it's true. You know, the old argument, well, if you have a million monkeys sitting in a room banging on typewriters for a billion years, sooner or later somebody would write Shakespeare. Right. You'd have a billion groups of... Maybe every once in a while you might get a word, <laughs> right? But no, I mean, you know, when you have a literary work like Shakespeare, I mean, that, that's, that's design. That takes 
an intelligent mind to produce all of that. Okay, that's the, I don't want to get into this too much. The cosmological argument is argument from cause to effect. Everything in life is caused by something. I used to like to use the pool table example. Okay, the effect. The eight ball goes in the corner pocket. All right? That, so what caused that? Well, the, the cue ball, the white ball hit the eight ball. Well, what caused the white ball to move? The cue stick hit it. What caused the cue stick to hit it? The arm moved. What caused the arm to move? Well, he wasn't studying. He was goofing off in the student center instead of studying. And you go back and, well, then, well, where did this student come from? Well, his parents met. And you can see where you can go back through, you know, infinity, really, back to this cause, this. and Everything has to have a cause. Well, at some point in time, as Thomas Aquinas said, you need a prime mover. You need the initial cause of all other activity. Now, in modern day uh, astronomy, you know, as astronomers that look at the ex- the so-called expanding universe, right? You know, they keep bringing it back, and they go back, and then they get to the Big Bang, which is the dominant viewpoint cosmologically right now, right? And I'm not talking about the show. <laughs> okay? Um, I never even watched that show, but, but the name intrigues me, the Big Bang Theory, right? Well, the question then becomes... What was the cause of the Big Bang? You know, scientists are baffled by that. And a lot of them are coming to the point of saying, well, it must be religious. It must be God. So that's an example of the cause. And these are very quick versions of that. There are many, many more classical arguments for theism, for belief in God to make any kind of sense of the universe and the world that we live in. Okay, the second uh, school of apologetics is what we're going to call evidential apologetics. And classical and evidential apologetics are are very similar. Um, The general characteristic is that they emphasize giving evidence for the Christian faith, whether it's historical evidence, logical evidence, uh, personal uh, testimony, evidence, and that sort of a thing. Okay? Okay. They do not think that miracles presuppose God's existence, but serve as evidence for God's existence. And some of the adherents uh, you'll be more familiar with. In fact, we have a book on the table by Josh McDowell um, called More Than a Carpenter, which is a discussion of all of the evidence that points to the divinity and the truth of Christian faith because of Christ, okay? So Warfield, Montgomery, Gary Habermans, uh, these are all individuals who take this approach. And again, you know, classical apologetics and, and evidential apologetics are very close. And I believe that, uh, well, also Lee Strobel. Uh, I haven't had a chance to read him yet, but I'm, I'm pretty sure from what I know that I would put him in the evidential apologetics candid, uh, category. You know, you know, he was a journalist, and I think you're going to get a lot of that in the next two weeks by a good friend of mine <laughs> who is a retired journalist. And he's going to talk about the evidence that supports our faith. 
you know. So uh, this is very important and an important way of doing apologetics, and it definitely has a place. And, uh, you know, like Strobel has sold, I don't know how many, but it's, it's got to be pushing close to a million copies of his book. You know, uh, and he's got several versions. He's got the case for Christ, the case for a creator, uh, and a couple others as well. The case, yeah, the case for faith and so forth. So, again, he's writing it from a journalist's perspective, a journalist who's looking at evidence for the truth. What, what is the evidence leading me to, and so forth. Again, very important approach. Now, an approach that most people are not aware of is an approach called presuppositional apologetics. And that sounds complicated, but it's really not that complicated. The general characteristics are, first, it emphasizes the importance of presuppositions or one's foundational thinking ideas, core worldviews, if you will. All right? So we want to go after the thought, the basic thought processes that people have as their assumptions as they approach the questions of the Bible and Christian faith and so forth. Okay? And I'll have a lot more to say about this because this is a one that's a lot harder to understand, and I'm going to actually demonstrate two, possibly three arguments, depending upon how much time we have. It's going to have to rush here. All right. This approach assumes the existence of God and the truth of the Bible, and actually also assumes that people already know God and are actually suppressing that knowledge. So turn with me, if you will, real quickly to Romans chapter 1. Get my Bible out. And this is a very important passage of Scripture. Romans chapter 1, beginning at verse 18. Still have my dual version of the Bible here. ¿Por qué los cosas invisibles de él? Oh, sorry, that's the wrong language. Okay. So, uh, verse 18. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So, what Paul is saying is that deep down inside, people know that God exists, but are suppressing that knowledge. So, uh, I think this is an important thing, in that, in that when we do apologetics, very seldom are we talking to somebody that has an open mind. They're often, deep down inside, they know the truth, but they are suppressing the truth in some way. So presuppositional apologetics seeks to kind of confront that suppression of the truth. And so I'll have a little bit more to say about that. But in any event, um, the adherents are individuals, uh, John Frame, Greg Bonson, uh, Cornelius Van Til, and some others as well. Uh, to a certain extent... Uh, Francis Schaeffer, 
Schaefer was trained at Westminster Theological Seminary and uh, also had some contact with Cornelius Van Til. Okay, so what does this sort of thing look like? Or let's ask ourselves the question, which is correct. I think they're all correct. I think it's just different circumstances. In fact, I think we see um, the Bible use all three. For example, we just read, you know, people know God and yet they suppress him. But if you go on two verses to verse 20, it says, That which can be known of God is evident within them, for since the creation of the world, God's divine attributes have been seen. So um, that's a classical argument. That's saying that when we look up to the heavens and we see the glory of God in the heavens, we can, we can see God's existence when we look at creation and so forth. So there, the Bible's actually using a classical argument for the existence of God, from creation, from seeing the world around us, and so forth. Okay? Um, evidential, uh, and I won't take the time to turn to this passage, but it's very well known. Paul says at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about all the appearances of Christ. He talks about all the witnesses. And then he says, and Jesus appeared to more than 500 people at one time. That's evidential apologetics. It's giving evidence for the truth of what the Bible says happened. Right? There are all these, all these witnesses to Jesus rising from the dead. Peter, James, and of course, last of all, Paul says, to me, he appeared. Okay, so that's evidential apologetics. Presuppositional, um, I believe we see it in Acts 17, where Paul, remember he's in Athens, and he sees the city filled with idols, and he says, what you worship in ignorance, this I declare to you. And so he, he points out that in spite of all of their religiosity, deep in their own hearts, they know they're still not finding the true God. And so he's confronting that inner voice of truth within their hearts. And, and I could go into that more, but I decided we don't have time for that today. But in any event... It seems that the Scripture uses all of these types of approaches. Now, and I know I'm moving rapidly here, but uh, we need to go. Another way to look at this is a threefold structure that John Frame has given to us. Again, remember, Frame is one of those guys who was in the presuppositional camp, but he's not exclusively presuppositional, and you'll see that in a minute. So he talks about three aspects of doing apologetics. Well, the first one is presenting evidence, apologetics as proof. Okay, So here is where we look back at classical and evidential schools of apologetics, presenting proof for the existence of God, for the truth of the biblical teachings, such as the resurrection of Christ. Right Now, we've already... Uh, I believe we've already covered the resurrection and the proofs for the resurrection, you know, uh, in this class. So I'm not going to talk about that as important as it is. All right? 
Okay, so that's the first kind of apologetics. The second kind of apologetics, and this is very, very important, is defense. Because we are being attacked all the time. So how do we respond to the objections against Christianity? Okay? And this is where, uh, and we didn't bring it, we didn't get a copy of this book, I'm afraid. But I really highly recommend it. It's been a great book. But it's Tim Keller's The Reason for God. And what Keller does in the beginning of his book is he goes through one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight objections. Each, each objection is a chapter. Okay? He talks about there can't just be one religion. Oh boy, do we hear that today, right? There are many spokes. All of them go to the center. You know, right? All right. How can God, how can a good God allow suffering? Now, I believe uh, one of our previous speakers actually focused on this particular question, right? Earlier, a few weeks ago. I think it was Bo Matthews, right? Okay. Yeah. Um, the problem of evil. They're also related. So, if God is good, why is there evil in the world? Christianity is a straitjacket. It inhibits my freedom. It tells me I shouldn't follow my natural inclinations. Of course, this would be uh, an argument of the radical homosexual uh, lobbies and so forth. Is that this is the way I'm designed and so I can't be expected to follow some outmoded uh, form of morality that the Bible teaches and so forth and so on. Uh, the church is responsible for so much injustice. So here, you know, we get the Crusades or the Inquisition or the religious wars in the 17th century or religious persecution during different periods of time, right? And that just gets thrown at you, and it's like, well, that can't be the truth. Look at all these wicked people doing these wicked things. Um, and this is a difficult one. How can a loving God send people to hell? Okay. If God is love, how can he judge people? Um, science has disproved Christianity. Okay, And last, you can't take the Bible literally. Now, if we had several more weeks, we could devote a week to each one of these questions and trying to build a defense about it. But, or you could go read Keller's book. <laughs> so I would highly recommend his book to you. So what I'm going to do next here is I'm going to deal with this first objection. There can't be just one true religion. And I'm going to kind of try to summarize uh, Keller's argument in this chapter because I really like it. And it's really helpful, in my opinion. So this isn't necessarily my thoughts here. But when we start off with this idea, we have objections. Okay? The Christian faith and its intolerance has brought a lot of suffering and war into the world. Right? So there is some truth there in that. Right? How can Christians claim to have an exclusive hold on the truth compared to other religions? What makes us right and them wrong? 
Aren't there many paths to God? You know, the spoke illustration. I hate that thing. (laughs) You know. All right, so. What have been the secular responses to these objections? Okay. Now, he lists three of them. One is to outlaw religion. Two is to condemn religion and try to work against it. Three, and this is what we really see today, keep religion a private matter. Okay, that should resonate with you because if you work in a public school, you are not allowed to say anything about your personal religious viewpoints. This is the dominant idea today. All right, so let's break these out a little bit. First of all, outlaw religion. This has been a massive failure. Okay? Um, The 20th century tried several different things. First of all, we have the Soviet Union. We have the worldwide communist movement that viewed religion as the opiate of the people and pretty much tried to completely repress it. So you have the uh, communist Russia or the Soviet Union and you have communist China, and so forth. In both of these cases, it was a colossal failure. Okay? You also have the Nazis, who tried to control religion, conform it to what they wanted to, and then destroy other forms of religion. And uh, most of us are not as familiar with this, but the Khmer Rouge, who killed hundreds of thousands of people in Cambodia and Laos uh, in the uh, 70s and 80s, I believe, um, also tried to eradicate religion and so forth. In all of these cases, they failed, and religion remains robust, and in many cases, thrived and increased in those environments. Take, for example, Red China. Uh, When the communists came to power in the early, late 40s, 50s in China, they expelled all of the Western missionaries. And the estimate was that um, Chinese Christians were only 1% of the Chinese population. Now it's up to 25%. That's like kicking the missionaries out was good. All of a sudden, the Chinese Christians had to take leadership for themselves. If they wanted the church to survive, they had to be the leaders, they had to be the teachers, and so forth. And now we see unprecedented uh, Christian growth in China. There's some very exciting stuff coming out of China. So um, the effort to try to outlaw religion was a huge failure. There's a wonderful quote here from Alistair McGrath, who says... The 20th century gave rise to one of the greatest and most distressing paradoxes of human history. That the greatest intolerance and violence of the century were practiced by those who believed that religion caused intolerance and violence. (laughs) Right, you know? So you have those who say, oh, religion is the problem, so we're going to outlaw it, and then they become the greatest abusers, and persecutors of people. So, this hasn't worked. Uh, This one's a little more complicated, but, and we see this a lot. Now, 
thank heavens we, we don't live in communist China where the government is actively trying to outlaw religion. But we do see a lot of these next two categories happening, I believe, within our own culture. So when we want to condemn religion, here I'm speaking for the intelligentsia, but can't we via, edu- you know, we're not going to outlaw it. We don't want to be the Nazis. We don't want to be communist China and say, you know, you can't go to church. But can't we via education and argument find ways to socially discourage religions that claim to have the truth? So you see, we can be tolerant of whatever religious idea you want to have. If you want to, you know, go out in the wilderness and eat peyote and have visions and believe in the mother goddess of the earth, that's fine. As long as you don't say that's the truth. That's just your truth. That's your experience. So that's okay. But it's the religions that claim to have the truth, especially Christianity, and when you try to convert others to your belief, then that we have to work against. So how does this happen? Well, typical objections are as follows. All major religions are equally valid and basically teach the same thing. Okay? And so the first thing we have to ask ourselves, do they really? Do all major religions teach the same thing? And generally what people will say when they use this objection is, well, they're not, if they're not anti-theistic, they'll say, well, you know, God is an all-loving spirit. Really? That's a theological statement. That's a theological position. In fact, the three major religions in the world, Christianity, Islam, and Judaism, do not believe that you can reduce God to simply love. Right? They all believe that God executes judgment and that there will be some sort of accountability after death for those who, how, how they live their lives. Okay? So when they assume the idea of God, they're really taking a theological position. And when they say that, when they say this, they're actually saying our theological understanding is superior to everybody else's theological understanding. Because this is, in a sense, a theological statement. Now, they don't. They will never admit that that's what they're doing, but that's exactly what they're doing. Keller says, Ironically, the insistence that doctrines do not matter is really a doctrine itself. It holds a specific view of God, which is touted as superior and more enlightened than the beliefs of most major religions. So the proponents of this view do the very thing that they forbid in others. They say, you can't claim to have the truth, and yet they claim to have this transcendent view of the truth. Okay. Second one. Each religion sees part of the spiritual truth, but none can see the whole truth. Now, the famous or infamous elephant example. You ever hear the elephant story? You know, uh, you put an elephant up here, 
and uh, three blind men go up and examine the elephant. And one man says, the elephant's like a snake, right? You know, because he sees the trunk. And one man says, the elephant's like a wall, because he's looking at the center of the, of the elephant. Another one says, the elephant's like a tree, because he sees, you know, he's touching the leg. And uh, so you see, the illustration goes that, well, all religions give us a piece of the overall view of God. But the problem with this is, is that in the illustration, we sit with our eyes open in the position of transcendent knowledge. We see the whole elephant. And so therefore, we can discern that this person only sees part of the elephant and this person sees part of the elephant and so forth. Right? And so what this person is claiming is to have transcendent knowledge of the truth and to say that each of these religions only has a little piece of it. So again, what they're saying here is that we, in our enlightened understanding, really understand the truth about God. The only way you can make that statement is by claiming to have the view of the whole elephant, which is claiming to have the view of the whole truth. So... Again, this is now you notice how how Keller is attacking these presuppositions in their thinking. You see, and attacking these assumptions and showing them for what they are. Because in, in truth and reality, this is portrayed as, oh, we're very tolerant. Oh, we're you know listening to everybody, and oh, oh, oh you don't want to be, you know, uh, you know right? So uh, another objection, religious belief is too culturally and historically conditioned to be truth. This view sees all religion as something that has been conditioned by our own cultures and historical contexts. Now, you can't say, Keller says, all claims about religion are historically conditioned except the one I'm making now. Okay, that didn't really register, okay? Let me say that again. You're saying that all religious ideas are culturally conditioned, except my view. (laughs) And I'm the one who's saying that your view is culturally conditioned. But again, I'm claiming to have this transcendent view of God, that God is this loving spirit, and blah, 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 and that all, all religions are essentially the same and leading to the truth. But how do you know that? See, that's essentially a theological Position. All right. Again, it's arrogant to insist that your religion is right and to convert others to it. Okay? By now, you've got to see the flaw in all of this that skeptics believe that any exclusive claims to superior knowledge can't be true, but this objection in and of itself is a religious belief. And it stops the conversation right there. Because if we would accept that there are some true ideas out there and some false ideas, then we could proceed down the evidential and uh, classical things and talk, Let's see, what does the evidence say? Say, what is the evidence for the truth? But this is a way that 
our culture, they just stop you from even being able to start that conversation. Okay. So, um, the third approach is to keep religion completely private. And uh, we saw the last prophet of postmodernism was Richard Rorty, his pragmatic approach, his idea that religion should be essentially a private matter and so forth. Uh, and, and this is what they essentially are saying. Without reference to any divine revelation or confessional tradition, we all should work together on the great problems of our time, such as AIDS, poverty, education, and so on. We should keep our religious views to ourselves and unite around policies that work best for most people. So this is pragmatism. It's, you know, like, well, let's just find what works, you know, we can't choose one viewpoint over another. But this is unrealistic because all of life's decisions are based upon worldviews, on a structure of what reality is and what it means. And this is why we're so divided in our culture today over even moral issues, educational issues, because we have different worldviews. Some people are out there and they have a natural evolutionary worldview that says that we're all here as a matter of accident, right? And so they don't believe in any kind of transcendent morality from above. Others buy into this, uh, this kind of approach to religion that says that God is essentially a, a benevolent spirit and so forth and so on, and none of these other things can be true. When you say remove privacy, I'm not yes, sure I follow you there. Right. Well, let's use the public school teacher analogy again. So, as long as you keep your religion private, you're okay. But if you, were to, if you were to get up in your class and try to argue for the truth of Christianity, or even in many cases, I think, just share your testimony about your own personal religious beliefs, you could face being fired. So that's the state. So the public right. schools are part of the state. I'm talking about three years in the Right. We will allow it. So they basically moved into the church structure and took over part of the church structure because they're saying we're not going to keep them separate. Right. So that's the kind of like interesting thing I'm talking about from the church side. Like, like for like in this country, we have this idea of marriage. If we don't separate the two, then like one challenge would be: Are we allowing then, if they're not separate, are we allowing? Right. 
Well, no, yeah, precisely right, because I think what is actually going to happen, I will put on my prophet's hat here. Um, I thought about this a lot when I was involved in a Christian university, and uh, but it also can apply to churches, in that right now, religious institutions in the United States are protected by the separation of church and state, but what's coming down the road is this aggressive anti-discrimination policy, okay, so that um, it already happened in Canada. I think I mentioned this last week. The pastor who spoke against homosexuality was actually arrested for hate speech. So, um, you know, I'm waiting for a landmark case, and I'm, I'm not aware of anything as yet, but a, some Christian professor at a Christian university comes out of the closet, you know, says I'm a homosexual whatever, and then is fired because of that. And then, you know, all the government can come down. Well, they'll say, you can have your private viewpoints, but now no longer we're going to take away all your rights. We're not going to allow any uh, government student loans to come to this organization and so forth. And uh, let me give you another example. Um, uh, for a while during for our organization, I was looking for donations and we're a nonprofit organization, SALT Leadership is. And I ran across a lot of companies that were willing to give donations or reduced-priced software and other services and so forth for nonprofit organizations, but often they made you sign a non-discriminatory statement. But those non-discriminatory statements also included gender identification, sexual preference, and all of that sort of thing. So that already uh, churches and religious organizations are being axed out of the broader spectrum of uh, privileges and uh, things that are offered to uh, other nonprofit organizations. You know, um, thank goodness Microsoft didn't make us do that. We actually got a very generous donation from Microsoft that gave us all of our people free copies to Microsoft Office and so that forth. Has already shown up, though, in Philadelphia. Yeah. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So you see here that the so-called <laughs> tolerance becomes intolerance. I will have... Well, I don't think I'm going to get to it today. I got some stuff. Yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Oh, I love trick questions. Okay, yeah. Right. Take an example like age or poverty. Right. What's the role of Christians or Christian organizations in working in society with other faith groups or people who have different beliefs in working on those sorts of problems? Well... It's, it's going to become increasingly difficult. Uh, a good friend of mine and, and a teacher in our organization is a Christian counselor in South Jersey. And New Jersey has passed a law that prohibits any counselor from counseling someone to change their sexual orientation. Okay, it's a trick question. All right. Um, mm-hmm. Right. On helping people in society. I mean, what is the right approach? I mean, because you could say, well, you're only going to work with Christians. 
question because you're not going to talk or say in a group, or you're working in what's the motivation like? What's the engagement? Well, I, what I would what I would say is that I have no problem working together with people as long as they're not asking me to compromise my beliefs. And that's there's the rub is that I think we're going to get forced into situations where if we're going to work within social structures and, and these sorts of environments, are we going to be able to do that without being forced? You know, it's kind of like the old question about the, you know, the doctors who are being forced to perform abortions, even though it was against their conscience to do so, you know, because that's the law, you know, and you can't turn down someone who has an abortion or you can't even refuse to do it. And so there's a lot of uh, debate about that. Yes, ma'am. Oh, I would agree, yeah. But, I mean, this is the, you know, this is the rub on all of this, is that so-called freedom of speech is being used to actually inhibit freedom of speech. Yeah. But that's kind of a whole other, I mean, uh, my goal here is not to talk about sociology and the ramifications of this. It's not my gig, and I'm not an expert in that. Um, I'm trying to get you to see the underlying ideas. Yeah. Yeah, I think the theme we're looking at, I mean, for me anyway, I just come back to Scripture, like all these things are pointing to we are supposed to be in the world, but not of it. And I think that's, you know, everything you're saying is close to that. But one interesting thing I was thinking before you, you know, mentioned that, thank you, was um, just yesterday on NPR, they had a lot of critiques on all these different things going on in the world and why certain groups are being criticized or not, and they actually brought up that we need to reconsider freedom of speech and re-look at, you know, under what context and circumstances and what parameters that's allowed. So, right. you know, going down your thought path, I wouldn't be surprised in the age that we're in, but I think for us, you know, it should draw us back to Well, you know, Keller's point here is that this so-called over, you know, society's overall wisdom, you know, that says, well, we have to limit free speech for these particular groups because we're going to call it hate speech or label it something really terrible, uh, is really a religious position. It's a worldview based upon an understanding of the meaning of life and how it should be understood, which is essentially a religious viewpoint. And so what we have is the domination of a new religion within our culture that is seeking to suppress any other religion that doesn't conform to its main ideas. Now, um, oh boy, okay. <laughs> I want to mention this last stuff uh, because I want to talk about apologetics as offense. Not being offensive but rather offense in the football sense of throwing the long bomb down the field to score a touchdown, okay? Not to be cantankerous, all right, or objectionable. So offensive, this is a quote from Tim Keller, by the way, as well, uh, but it comes out of John Frame's framework. Offensive apologetics shows the non-Christian the problems of his own position 
are far, far greater than any weaknesses in the Christian position. See how it's going to the, to the underlying thought processes. Offensive apologetics is highly personal, interactive. Instead of making the non-Christian sit still for a long chain of reasoning, it goes right in and begins to ask questions in a Socratic way. It reveals the arbitrary and usually unconscious nature of their own faith assumptions and the inadequacies of their own worldviews. Now, let me put some feet on this. And I've gotten this from Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer used to call this taking the roof off from his book, The God Who Is There, one of my favorite books from the 1970s. Anybody read that? The God Who Is There? Uh, he's also, another very famous one of his works is Escape from Reason, where he shows the irrationality of the non-Christian position. But, okay, here we go. Uh, and my artwork is rather basic, as you can see. Um, <laughs> Here is the non-Christian, and he has a set of presuppositions. So maybe he's an, a naturalistic evolutionist, okay? So um, what taking the roof off does is seek to expose the logical consequences of those presuppositions. So if you say that I believe in evolution and that there is no God... What are, the, what are the ramifications of that idea? And the truth is that no one can live here. I'll have a, an illustration of that in just a moment. And so what a person does is they choose to live here. They may reject all these ideas that say that there's a God and that there's the way you should live and so forth. And they, instead, they build a roof over themselves okay, that protects them. And so what this strategy tries to do is to take the roof off, to show the non-believer the logical consequences of their, their worldview, their, their presuppositions. Now, uh, let's take an example of this from uh, Schaefer's own writing. He talks about a man by the name of John Cage, who was a contemporary American composer, and he believed the universe is impersonal personal in nature and it's originated by chance. So professionally, he decided, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make music that way, by chance. So he threw coins up in the air and recorded the sounds and did all these different kinds of things to live consistently within his, his worldview. That life is chance. Okay? He rolled the dice to make sure no personal element enters into the final product. The result is the music with no form, no structure, and more significantly, no appeal. (laughs) Right? No one wants to sit and listen to a bunch of random noise. Okay? Now, it's interesting... So here's this non-Christian. He has this, this presupposition. In one part of his life, he's trying to live that out. You know, the universe is random, chance, music. But when it comes to mushrooms, you say, what? Mushrooms had it. Well, Cage professional life accurately reflects his belief in a universe that has no order. His personal life does not. 
His favorite pastime was mycology, collecting of mushrooms. Okay? And because of the potentially lethal effects of picking the wrong mushroom, he cannot approach it on a pure chance-by-chance basis. Concerning that, he states, I became aware that if I approached mushrooms in the spirit of my chance operations, I would shortly die. Right? So John Cage believes in one thing, but actually practices another. So this is the core of this offensive strategy. And I, was, I had two other arguments I was going to take you through. We didn't get to them today. But uh, um, I'd highly recommend a couple of uh, books. Let me just get to... My book list, here it is. Okay. And there are many, many more. We've got uh, some books by Lee Strobel and uh, uh, Josh McDowell. But D.A. Carson is really good on the societal ramifications of the gagging of God through intolerance via the method of tolerance. Uh, It's very academic, though, but if you want a really good read. uh, We have copies of Stan Gren's a primer on postmodernism here on the table if you're interested in that. Doug Gruthius, Truth Decay. I had several quotations from him. And uh, I used this book as a textbook for my class a couple weeks ago, Tim Keller, The Reason for God. Uh, really very astute, offensive apologetics and also answering objections. And then I was hoping to share with you some arguments from Vern Poitras's Redeeming Science, a God-Centered Approach, where he argues that scientists say, for the most part, they don't believe in God, but they have to, because they deal in truth. They're seeking to find truth, and truth that is like a law, and laws are, they work everywhere at all times, so that's omniscient, like God, and so forth. He has this wonderful argument about how um, science really has to believe in God, but yet what they do is they don't, and then they deify an idol and start talking about the wonders of Mother Nature instead of God. So, um, all right, well, we're out of time. Um, So thank you for the opportunity of being with you here today, and uh, I hope to see you again soon. Thank you. Good questions, good interaction. Thank you.